everybody. It's Nurse Mo. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm so excited to be spending a little bit of time with you today as we dive into episode 154, which is all about immobility, enemy of the people. We'll talk about that in just a second. First, it's time to give a little bit of love to Elise for writing this wonderful review. So for our listener shout out, hey, Elise, here's what you said. Past the NCLEX. I really appreciate this, and I'm especially thankful for Nurse Mo. I read her book before nursing school, used her notes, planner, and podcast. I especially love the pod quiz episodes and the encouragement to stay active. My dogs were also happy for the extra walk time. Well, Elise, I'm thrilled that you and your pups got to go out and do walks while we studied together. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and congrats on getting through your licensing exam. I guess I should have said Elise RN when I introduced you. Okay, you guys. So if you're wondering what planner she's talking about, I do have a planner that I make just for nursing students. It is a printable planner or in a digital format so that you can use it with your iPad or your tablet. And before you go, oh man, I don't want to deal with printing out a planner. Some people love the DIY-ness of that, that it's super cheap to just print it and go. But some of you like having it all done for you. I have found an amazing place that does the printing. They spiral bind it. They've got these great covers. They're tear-proof. They're waterproof. They're awesome. They will even put tabs on the months. It's a beautiful product. They will ship in the U.S. They'll actually ship some international Though the shipping is really expensive, as you can imagine. So if you're not in the U.S., you would be better off finding a local place to do this for you. And there are tons of printers out there that will do this for you, copy shops, whatever. This place will, however, do it for an amazing price. So it's totally, totally worth it if that interests you. So now let's talk about enemy number one, you guys. Immobility. Immobility is a key key concept that you will start hearing about almost from the first day of nursing school. And it will get drilled into your head over that entire time that you're in nursing school, how dangerous it is. And and then when you're you're working as a nurse, you're going to be doing a lot of things surrounding immobility and trying to prevent that. So if your vision of being a nurse had to do with getting all the sick people all tucked into bed and snug, then you, my friend, are in for a bit of a surprise. As great as it sounds to be all cozy and snug in bed when you don't feel well, It's actually one of the very worst things that we can do for our patients. So in this episode, we'll cover the key reasons immobility is the number one enemy of nursing. Are you ready? So immobility, big problem with it is that it leads to skin breakdown. So when we think of immobility, 
probably the first thing that comes to mind is skin breakdown. Patients who are immobile are at huge risk for pressure ulcers and moisture-associated breakdown secondary to incontinence. So for all patients, especially ones with decreased mobility, you're going to keep a very watchful eye on any bony prominences such as the scapula and the sacrum and also that perineal area in general if the patient is incontinent, okay? It's crucial that we keep these patients clean and dry. And we'll sometimes even use barrier creams such as Boudreaux's butt paste to help keep stool and urine from actually getting into contact with the skin. So you'll see those used quite a bit. So every head-to-toe assessment, as you've probably learned by now or will soon, includes a skin assessment, especially those high-risk areas. So one of the first signs that your skin's getting compromised is it's going to be redness, okay? And if you push on that or press on that reddened area and it blanches, so when we say it blanches, it means it turns like a paler color and then the redness comes back then that skin, you're not quite at the pressure ulcer zone, but you're in the danger zone. So if it's still blanching, you can still do things to keep it from becoming a pressure ulcer. But if it's non-blanching, we say non-blanchable redness, the skin has already been injured. And now the patient's going to need really aggressive treatment around that. So what are you going to do about this? You're going to do thorough skin assessments on your patients. You're going to use barrier creams where they are appropriate. You're going to keep your patient clean. You're going to keep them dry. And you're going to consider specialty mattresses or waffle mattresses that we use in the facility where I work. It's kind of like a a bumpy air mattress, and it just helps distribute weight, helps keep the skin from getting that pressure. And, of course, you're going to increase mobility. Okay, next one. Immobility leads to respiratory compromise and decreased respiratory function. So patients who aren't moving around a lot also are not breathing deeply. They're not coughing as effectively, getting that sputum up. They're not exercising their lungs. So this patient is set up now for general respiratory deconditioning and pneumonia. So without regular exercise, those muscles of respiration, they become weak. And that sets the patient up for further respiratory compromise. And then without the deep breathing, without the coughing, mucus and any pathogens in the lungs, they accumulate. And that puts the patient at huge, huge risk for pneumonia. We use that incentive spirometer. And if you guys haven't encountered one of those yet, you will very, very soon. It's a device and it's basically used to encourage big, deep inhale. So it's a device that the patient uh, it's a. It's hard to describe until you see it, but it's got like a little tube and then a mouthpiece and then this thing with numbers on it. And when they breathe 
in this little um, measuring thing goes up the numbers and it measures how big of an inhale, how much lung expansion they've gotten. There's incentive there to keep trying to get that little measuring and sometimes a little ball that goes up to get that to go up so that they can get bigger and bigger and bigger lung expansion. And so that incentive spirometer is a great device for promoting respiratory function. So Immobility leads to depressed respiratory function. So what are you going to do about it? Remember, nurses see problems and we fix them. So we're going to monitor the patient's respiratory depth. We're going to assess their cough, their ability to cough. Is it a weak cough that's not getting anything up? Or is it a good, strong cough that's clearing out all the gunk? We're going to monitor their oxygen saturation levels. Use that incentive spirometer. And we typically will have patients do that 10 times an hour while they're awake. And if the patient's watching a TV program, I say do a couple of these whenever a commercial comes on. And that generally gets them to that 10 times an hour goal. You're going to encourage the coughing, the deep breathing, that respiratory hygiene, as we say. We're going to treat their pain but also be careful of over-sedation. So with the reason we associate pain control with this is because if the patient's in a lot of pain, they tend to take shallow, careful breaths. So you want to provide pain control, pain management, but not so much that you cause over-sedation and cause respiratory depression. And of course, we're going to increase mobility. Very good. Okay, the next reason that immobility is enemy number one is that it leads to constipation. So when the body slows down, the GI tract follows. Add in some opioids, and now your patient is at very high risk for constipation. So not only is constipation really uncomfortable for the patient, it comes with its own set of problems. These include things like fecal impaction, hemorrhoids, and hemorrhoids can bleed, you guys, and hemorrhoids can bleed so much that they become life-threatening, okay? You could get anal fissures with that, rectal prolapse. Severe constipation can cause bowel perforations, and that is a life-threatening emergency, and decreased blood flow to areas of the bowel, which can lead to ischemia, and anytime the bowel gets ischemic, you guys, your patient's going down a very dark path of extreme sickness, and it could even be fatal. So what are you going to do about it? Well, one of the things we can do is encourage fluids. So dehydration exacerbates constipation. So let's encourage some fluids. Administer stool softeners, administer laxatives, administer enemas, all those things that the physician will order. We're going to get the patient up to the commode to use the bathroom because that's a lot easier for patients to have a bowel movement than on a bedpan, for example. And we're going to increase mobility. As we increase mobility, everything with the GI tract increases as well and constipation improves. All right, the next reason immobility is enemy number one is immobility leads to renal dysfunction. 
So the effects of immobility and prolonged bed rest, lots of studies about this, you guys, really interesting if that is a subject that you are drawn to. The effects of immobility and prolonged bed rest on the renal system are multifactorial. So you get decreased GFR leading to decreased urinary excretion of waste products. Okay, that makes perfect sense. There's also increased risk of the formation of renal calculi due to the backflow of urine into the kidneys, okay? And then you could have pooling of urine in the renal calyces, setting that patient up for a UTI. Urinary retention can occur due to Lack of pressure placed on the bladder by abdominal organs. So when you're upright, there's a little bit of pressure that your abdominal organs place on your bladder. Without that added little bit of pressure, then the urge to urinate, even when the bladder is full, is reduced. And then additionally, it's more difficult to fully empty a bladder when using a bedpan or a urinal in that supine position. So it sets the patient up for retention. And over time, your bladder, you know, it's over distended, chronically over distended. It causes those stretch receptors to lose their sensitivity. And without that sensitivity in the stretch receptors, then you all remember your micturition reflex from anatomy and physiology. So you just get more and more retention. And without the flushing, that regular flushing of the bladder and the urinary tract that comes with urination, we are at really high risk for a UTI. And then if the patient also has, you know, urinary or fecal incontinence, another huge risk factor for UTI with that bacteria migrating into the urinary tract. And that's generally a higher risk for the ladies than the gentlemen because of differences in anatomy. So what are you going to do about this problem. Well, we're going to encourage fluids to help stimulate those stretch receptors, okay? We're going to get the patient up to the commode to urinate if we can. Again, that upright position is going to help. Men urinate a lot easier standing than they do lying in bed. You know, using the urinal in the bed is kind of difficult. Getting them standing or at least sitting on the edge of the bed is a lot easier for them to fully enter the bladder. Monitor for urinary retention. We can do that with a bladder scanner. And we're going to increase mobility. You guys getting the hang of this yet? Here's another reason immobility is enemy number one. Immobility leads to physical deconditioning, and it can happen pretty quickly, you guys. Without weight-bearing exercise and activity, immobility leads to contractures. It leads to bone demineralization and the catabolic breakdown of muscle and lean tissue. Well, that doesn't sound fun at all. Patients will be noticeably weaker after even just a couple of days of bed rest. And extended periods of immobility can drastically affect their ability to walk unassisted or even perform ADL. So I've taken care of patients in the ICU who were robust individuals when they came in with whatever illness they had. They're there for 
few weeks, several weeks, sometimes a couple of months, completely physically deconditioned. And then that's a whole other level of their recuperation. Um, Patients who are so physically deconditioned, they cannot even sit upright unassisted. Okay, so not even enough muscles in their trunk to hold their torso upright. So it can happen and it happens really fast. So what are you going to do about it? You're going to Assess your patient's muscle strength, especially before you're getting them out of bed for the first time. Encourage in-bed exercises. Patients can do all kinds of things in bed to keep muscles going. You're going to um, ask the MD for PT consult. You can perform range of motion, which helps prevent contractures. Utilize assistive devices such as walkers, things like that. And always increase mobility. Okay, another reason immobility is enemy number one is it leads to electrolyte imbalances. So sodium levels tend to decrease with immobility and bed rest due to reduced ADH levels, though Eventually, they will stabilize when the release of aldosterone is triggered, but just know that you could have imbalances with sodium levels. However, when we have that increased aldosterone secretion, then that causes potassium losses in the urine, leading to hypokalemia. So we started out with the sodium level issue. Now we've got a potassium level issue. Additionally, plasma concentrations of calcium, they're going to go up as bone demineralization occurs. And that can happen and be evident within days of immobility and bed rest, you guys. So what are you going to do about it? You'll monitor serum electrolytes. You'll replace or treat as needed. And say it with me, increase mobility. Very good. Okay. Another reason immobility is enemy number one. And we got several more to go, you guys. There's a lot. I told you it was a uh, enemy of nursing, right? Enemy of the people. Immobility contributes to psychological dysfunction. So studies have shown that immobility contributes to psychological deterioration. There was a randomized trial of intubated patients, and it showed that those who received early physical therapy endured half as many days of delirium than patients who did not get any physical activity. This is definitely not restricted to patients who are in the ICU, patients on a ventilator. The loss of sensory input that comes with immobility, prolonged bed rest, you know, there's isolation, there's boredom, there's loss of independence. All of those key factors contribute to the development or exacerbation of depression, anxiety, and definitely confusion. So what are you going to do about this? Assess your patient for confusion. Assess them for depression, anxiety. Place a clock and a date, uh, like a calendar or the day of the week and a date in view of the patient so they stay more oriented. Make sure they have their glasses. Make sure they have their hearing aids. If they're having less sensory input because they're in bed, can we make sure they can see things? Can we make sure they can hear things? We're going to reorient the patient as needed and increase mobility. You guys are getting an A plus here. 
Another reason we don't want our patients to be immobile is it leads to deep vein thrombosis. So without activity, blood tends to pool in those lower extremities, which sets the patient up for blood clot formation, and those DVTs can then travel to the lungs and cause a pulmonary embolism. So what are you going to do to prevent this from happening? Well, let's ensure that while our patient is in bed, they're wearing their sequential compression devices, also often referred to as SCUDs. They can perform ankle pumps to keep the blood flow going. They can receive pharmacologic prophylaxis if that's warranted, such as Lovenox, heparin. And guess what else? You're going to do everything you can to increase mobility. Very good. Another reason that immobility is enemy number one is it leads to falls. So thanks to the weakness that comes with it, the confusion, orthostatic hypotension, these patients very, very high risk for falls. So what are we going to do to help prevent falls in our patients who've been on bed rest for a bit? We will use in-bed mobilization as much as we can to increase endurance. You'll be asking for that PT consult. Teach your patient to get up slowly, even if they've been on, you know, bed rest for a day or they had surgery and they're just now getting up for the first time, teach them to get up slowly because of orthostatic hypotension. It's going to be that drop in blood pressure when they go from a supine to a sitting position, supine to standing, even sitting to standing. So going slow step by step. You want to make sure the call light is within reach of the patient so that they're not um, getting out of bed without help. Keep confused patients near the nurse's station. That's very helpful so that you can keep a closer eye on them. Ensure the overbed table is within reach. The things that they want to reach are there within reach. A lot of patient falls happen because the patient was just trying to get over to their overbed table that someone forgot to push over to the bed because they wanted, you know, their romance novel or whatever that they wanted. And then you want to make sure the bed is low and locked, if I didn't say that already. And guess what else we're going to do? Increase mobility. Very good. And then one more reason why immobility is enemy of the people is it leads to impaired glucose metabolism. So even bed rest durations as short as seven days, which I realize sounds kind of like a long time, but sometimes patients will be on extended, you know, they'll be immobile for extended times because of a severe, severe illness has been associated with insulin resistance and impaired glucose metabolism. And I could do a whole podcast episode on the dangers of hyperglycemia. That would be an excellent idea. I will write that down on the list. So going back to our issue of immobility, studies looking at the early mobilization of ICU patients. And when you guys start looking at critical care, or if you work in that environment, you will see that one of the huge themes in ICU care is early mobilization. Lots of work being done in this area. And the study showed that these ICU patients with early mobilization had decreased insulin requirements. And that suggests, according to the authors of this study, that early mobilization could be just as effective of an insulin therapy as actual 
insulin and maintaining, you know, those normal blood glucose levels in patients who are critically ill and on mechanical ventilators. And then another study looked at what happened to participants' insulin resistance when their step counts decreased to less than a thousand steps per day. And the study said, you know, less than a thousand steps per day would mimic somebody who's possibly hospitalized and not moving around that much. So what happened with the people in this study is that their resistance to insulin increased, their blood glucose levels went up, and in patients over age 65 did not return to baseline when their normal levels of activity were resumed. So in other words, very, very important that we promote normal glucose metabolism. We want to get those patients mobilizing, right? Right? especially the older ones. So what are we going to do about it? We'll monitor our patient's blood sugar levels. We will be administering insulin as ordered, possibly considering that consistent carbohydrate diet and increasing mobility. So we've talked about why we need to increase mobility and all these situations where we would do that how are we going to increase mobility? So increasing mobility does not simply mean, you know, I'm doing air quotes now, ambulate the patient in the hallway for a distance of 60 feet three times per day. That's not what it means, though that is a great idea. Mobilization is going to be tailored for each individual and very specific. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So things to consider when you're increasing mobility with your patient is First of all, the patient's physical overall fitness or lack thereof, any limitations that they have, any physical limitations or medical limitations. You also want to consider their ability to tolerate activity. Will their heart rate take it? Will their blood pressure take it? Will their respiratory status be able to handle it? What about um, anything else that is going on with the patient? Can they tolerate activity? You also need to take into account the simple fact of can this patient follow instructions? Are they being impulsive? Are they so confused and disorienting that disoriented that it's really unsafe? So you need to be looking at that. You want to look at the patient's fall risk, obviously, and then what resources are needed. Do we need um, uh, some equipment, some assistive devices? Do we need extra personnel? What's it going to take to get this patient um, mobilized safely? The patient's goals and their wishes can be taken into account. And of course, the MD orders. So in general, you will maximize activity. You will mobilize your patient to the greatest extent you can for that person. Again, it's not always that they're going to walk the halls, right? Mobilize to the max that that patient can do. And then you got to... always pushing the envelope. You're always seeing if you can do a little bit more. So some examples of things that can be done for patients to increase mobility, passive range of motion, and repositioning the patient at least every two hours. Okay, that would be baseline, you guys. That's your completely immobile patient. Maybe they're in a medically induced uh, coma. You know, they're super sedated you're going to be doing range of motion and repositioning them at least every two hours. That would be baseline, um, you know, mobility activity that you could do. 
Let's say the patient can tolerate a little bit more than that. They're getting a little bit better, right? Now we can take that bed and put it into what is called beach chair position. I don't know if that's just what we call it at my hospital, but basically on, you know, these ICU beds, they can do all these cool tricks, all these cool things. The setting on these beds can put the patient up into a chair-like position. The head of the bed comes up to 90 degrees, the foot of the bed drops down, and it's essentially like they're sitting in a chair. That's really good exercise for the patient. And for some patients, that's all they can do, and it's good because you're pushing them a little bit. Now your patient's getting a little stronger. He's getting a little better. We're not just going to keep putting him in beach chair. We're going to push the envelope. We're always progressing him forward. So now maybe he dangles on the edge of the bed, and that means simply that he's sitting on the edge of the bed with his legs over the side. We do this with intubated patients, you guys. They're on a ventilator. We'll dangle them, and I find that one of the things they love, I mean, it's hard, right? If you're on a ventilator, you're sick, and it's a lot of work to be sitting on the edge of the bed while you're wide awake and you're not on any sedation and you're on a ventilator, that's huge. So what I like to do for patients when we do this is I get some lotion, you know, the respiratory therapist is there, and I go behind the patient and I give them a quick back massage, put some lotion on their skin, get some blood flow going, and they love that. Can you imagine how good that would feel if you've been laying in bed for a few days? Oh my gosh. Okay, our patient's getting a little bit better. He can handle some more. Um, now we're going to get him out of bed to the chair for his meals, okay? Patients have cardiac surgery. They have a coronary artery bypass graft. Guess how quick they're getting out of bed for their next meal. It's breakfast the next day, y'all. They are getting out of bed for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Those cardiac surgeons are strict about getting the patients up and moving, and that is because immobility is the enemy of the people. And then getting uh, the patient to ambulate would be the next thing. Can he walk around in the room? How does he do um, walk into the bathroom and using the actual commode in there versus the one at the bedside? So you're pushing the envelope a little bit. And then maybe they're ready to start venturing out of the room and ambulating in the hallway. Now, there are going to be special circumstances where the patient is very deconditioned and you have to take even more baby steps. So one of the things that we do, let's say we've had a patient in the ICU and we want to get them mobilizing, we use this device called a cardiac chair. And what the cardiac chair is, it's the coolest thing ever. It lays completely flat. So it's kind of like a gurney, um, but the mattress, I guess it's a mattress, the surface on it is kind of firm. So it's supportive. It's not all squishy like a gurney. Um, and this device lays completely flat. The arm uh, rails come down and you put it right next to the patient's bed. And then you just slide them over onto this flat surface, this cardiac chair surface. And then you put the straps on so that they're safe. And then the coolest thing, this, this flat thing becomes a chair. You lift the head up, the feet drop down, kind of like the bed did when we put it in that beach chair position. We're now in the cardiac chair. It sits up. You can choose the angle based on what the patient can tolerate. 
and now they're sitting in a chair. But it's not like you had to get them up and do this whole thing where you try to stand and pivot and put them in a chair. It's super safe. You slide them over, you turn that flat surface up into a chair position. They hang out there, hopefully, for at least a couple of hours, do some conditioning. Patients will be so weak that they lean to one side because their trunk has deconditioned. You might need to get creative with some pillow props and all of that. And voila, there you go. Set them up with, uh, you know, the football game on or whatever, and they start to feel more and more like themselves as they increase their mobility. And then another cool device is a standing device. I don't know exactly what it's called. I call it the stand board, but sometimes I've realized over the years I've made up names for stuff. Um, But it's, again, it's flat. So you would slide the patient over to it. And then it has a a foot rest thing that comes up. And essentially, you just take that flat, you know, surface that you've slid them over to. And instead of it going into chair position, it just tilts all the way up to a standing position. And now they can do weight bearing. And that is a great way to get them um, some weight bearing exercise. And then the other tip that I want to tell you guys, my pro tip of the day. You've got a patient who's got some delirium. They're acutely confused. Okay, I'm not talking about your patient with dementia. I'm talking about your patient with delirium. And and one day I'll do an episode on the differences between delirium and dementia and ICU delirium and all of that. It's fascinating. But let's just say you've got a patient and they've gotten acutely confused, and there's a million reasons why that could happen in the clinical setting, I'm telling you, the best thing that you can do, this is just my nursing tip, I haven't done a scientific study on it, but my trick is I get that patient mobilized. If I can get them sitting up in a chair, so get them out of bed, open the blinds if it's daytime, turn on the lights, hello, it's daytime, patients get delirious because There's like a hard to tell day or night in the hospital. Trying to match that natural rhythm is great. Window shades up, lights on, in the chair, even walking around if they can take that. And it's almost like you can see them coming back to themselves gradually and then more and then more and then more. And it is amazing what increasing their mobility can do for their cognitive function. It is my coolest, most basic, most awesome nursing trick. So you guys remember that. Okay, you guys, that is what I have to say about immobility and why it is so dangerous for your patient. Your professors are going to love that you know this stuff because combating immobility is a lot of what we do when we're working with patients in the clinical setting. So I will see you back here next week for more of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. See you then. Bye, guys. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.